how do you head for the heights and not lose yourself? I mean, is it even possible to be ambitious, you know, strive for a worthy goal and still be humble, still stay grounded? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Brad Stuhlberg has just published the third of, I think, a trilogy of books. The first is called Peak Performance. The second, The Passion Paradox. And now, most recently, The Practice of Groundedness. Now, as a researcher and a writer, Brad's something of a Renaissance man. He looks for convergences in academia and ancient wisdom, and then teases out the patterns within. I believe that by highlighting patterns and themes, we get very close to truth with a capital T. So that is the sweet spot that I'm interested in with my writing and my research. The first fundamental pattern he uncovered is really one of the engines of personal growth. It was this notion that in my first book, Peak Performance, I've gone on to call the growth equation. And it is that stress plus rest equals growth. Okay, well, I get that in theory, but you know, how does that work in practice? I mean, how do we balance both sides of the equation, stress and rest. I want to live a long, healthy life, but I also want to maintain the flame I have to make an impact in the world. So what I have found in myself and in my coaching practice is that there is a big difference between doing the work itself Mm. and the amount of energy that can go into thinking about Basking in, despairing about the (laughs) results of the work, what other people think of the work, what the work could turn into, Mm. what happened in the past. Right. So in my own mind, I, I have three buckets, and I talk about this all the time with coaching clients. I have doing your craft where you can have an impact, Yep. or crafts plural. I have true unplugged rest recovery family. Hiking out in nature without your phone, mm-hmm. sitting down to dinner with no devices, and every time you have a thought about work, you realize it, you don't judge it, and you're back to dinner. And then that third bucket is what I call getting swept up into everything that surrounds the work. Right. And I think the more that we can work on minimizing that third bucket, right, the more fuel we have for the other two, and the better we feel, and the more sustainable it becomes. Um, I know just a few weeks ago, there, there's such a prime example of this on the world stage in the Olympics mm-hmm. with the amount of athletes that really are struggling with getting so swept up into everything around the sport yeah. and it encroaches on their ability to enjoy the sport. Yeah. Um, again, this isn't a switch that you turn on. This is a deliberate practice. No different than the investment banker that is refreshing the stock market. Yeah. <laughs> or the founder that is constantly updating her email mm. to see if the VC got back to them. Yeah. Um, for me as an author, it's checking the book sales rank. Oh, yeah. And the more that you can separate yourself from those inclinations, sure. the better. And eventually you just forget about them. So I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of immersing yourself in joyous activities yeah. where it doesn't take effort not to think about that. If you're out in a mm. beautiful hike in nature or you're at the gym training with your friends, or yeah. you're playing fetch with your dog, whatever it is, it's a lot easier not to obsess over all the other stuff because you yeah. become enmeshed in the moment. You know, uh, a previous guest on the podcast um, interviewed 
you know, high achievers, particularly endurance athletes, people who take their to the very edge of what's possible. And she noticed that many of them found quite, it was quite difficult to actually identify activities that are purely pleasurable and you're there for the joy because you're like, I'll just do this for the joy. And then you go, oh, I could write a blog post about this <laughs> or I yeah. could, I could turn this into a lesson or and, and this is great. And by the way, I should ask this person if they want to be on my podcast or collaborate or do something. Have you found a way to access activities that are goalless? Yes and no. Mm. So I don't believe in work-life balance. Mm. I think that you're here for X amount of time and everything is work and everything is life. Right. That is just my perspective. I think trying to separate the two is intellectually dishonest because as you said, you can't turn off your brain. Look, if you're trying to read beautiful fiction that has nothing to do with your work as an accountant, but the book makes you think of something for your accounting <laughs> practice, right. okay, that's just a human brain. Right. So I'm not, I don't try to separate the two. I don't judge myself. I don't tell my clients to judge themselves when that mm -hmm. happens. What I do is become aware of and realize how external tools and ways of sharing make it more likely that that kind of thinking will happen. Mm. So a very concrete example. Yeah. I love strength training. Mm -hmm. Everyone asks me why I'm not on Instagram. The reason is because I know if I was on Instagram, I would probably get caught up in making videos about strength training. Right. And then suddenly that area of my life would become quote unquote work or out for judgment. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean to say that when I'm strength training, I'm goalless. Of course not. Mm -hmm. But my guess is it feels a lot more light and free mm. than if I felt I needed to post about it. Right. Brad, tell us about the book that you've chosen. I'm very intrigued by this. So the book that I've chosen, I'm looking down, is called The Sane Society. Mm -hmm. It's by Eric Fromm, who was a predominant, really, polymath um, the main hats that he wore were his research psychologist, sociologist, and practicing psychoanalyst. Right. Uh, he was born in 1900. He yep. did most of his best work between 1935 and 1965. And this book is a post-World War II book. It was first published in 1955, um, and it's called The Sane Society. How did you come across it? I began reading Eric from... Shortly after graduate school, mm -hmm. my introduction to his work, I was at the time thinking about proposing marriage to my then girlfriend, who's my now wife. So he Excellent. didn't turn me off to the idea. <laughs> that seemed to go okay. <laughs> um, he has a beautiful book called The Art of Loving. Right. And I read that book thinking it would be a book about love in the romantic sense between two people. Mm. It definitely was that, but it was so much more. It was about thinking of love as presence and concentration and caring and responsibility and how a loving orientation is something that we don't just need to bring to other people, but we can bring to everything that we do. Right. And it's one of those things where not only does it make you feel good, but it certainly right. powers your work and, and I would argue makes the world a better place. Nice. So from there, that was probably his most famous 
uh, commercial success, but mm-hmm. he's got this whole array of books um, that were not as commercially successful, but I think even richer with intellect and ideas. Yeah. So I went on a, an Eric Fromm binge, <laughs> um, and um, I've probably still only read 60% of his work because there's just so much. Right. Uh, you know, when I, when I knew that you were going to read from Eric Fromm, and I'm like, I know that name, but I don't know his work. You know, I kind of poked around Amazon. And I'm like, he, he's got A, a lot of work, and B, there, there are so many good titles like The Art of Being and The Sane Society. There's so many things where I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to read that. Oh, I want to read that as well. Um, so how did you decide what to read? I mean, knowing that From is a big influence on you. So I went to my bookshelf and I pulled out From, which is like nine books on my shelf. Nice. And I take meticulous notes as I read mm. with little three by five cards that, oh, I see that yeah. to, um, to areas to come back to. And I found the, the passage that is most on my mind right now um, across all nine books. It happened to come from the Sane Society. It was in close competition with another beautiful book that he wrote called Escape from Freedom, mm. um, which like has a lot title. to do with the inclination towards authoritarian movements. Mm-hmm. Um, which here in the States is unfortunately something that I've heard about that about more than we'd like. Um, but this book is very much related to my own big project that I have coming out, um, really right now. And, um, it just is one of these things where nothing is really new. There are some timeless truths and you'll see as I read, the concerns that Eric Fromm was investigating in 1955 are the same concerns that I'm investigating in 2021. Yeah, you know, I, I often use the phrase, "What I, the work I do is old wine in new bottles," and uh, it feels like we are we are working in the same vineyard. <laughs> I love. Wow, nice, nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, let's hear this, uh, Brad. Yeah, two pages from Eric Fromm's book. Thank you. Okay, and I'm going to bounce around a little. It's two pages total, but I think it comes from, what did I mark? From four pages. Perfect. Okay, again, this is 1955. Man today is fascinated by the possibility of buying more, better, and especially new things. He is consumption hungry. The act of buying and consuming has become compulsive and irrational because It is an end in itself with little relation to the use of or pleasure in the things bought and consumed. To buy the latest gadget, the latest model of anything that is on the market, is the dream of everybody, in comparison to which the real pleasure in use is quite secondary. Modern man, if he dared to be articulate about his concept of heaven, would describe a vision which would look like the biggest department store in the world, showing new things and gadgets, and himself having plenty of money with which to buy them. He would wander around open-mouthed in this heaven of gadgets and commodities, provided only that there were ever more and newer things to buy, and perhaps that his neighbors were just a little less privileged than he. One of the most striking examples for this kind of pleasure consumption is the taking of snapshots, which has become one of the most significant leisure activities. The Kodak slogan, you press the button, we do the rest, which since 1889 has helped so much to popularize photography all over the world is symbolic. It is one of the earliest appeals to quote unquote, the push button power feeling. You do nothing, you do not have to know anything, everything is done for you. All you have to do is press the button. Indeed, 
The taking of snapshots has become one of the most significant expressions of alienated visual perception, of sheer consumption. The quote-unquote tourist with his camera is an outstanding symbol of an alienated relationship to the world. Being constantly occupied with taking pictures, actually, he does not see anything at all, except through the intermediary of the camera. Uh, note from me, you could replace camera with social media. The camera sees for him, and the outcome of his quote-unquote pleasure trip is a collection of snapshots, which are the substitute for an experience which he could have had, but did not. Man is not only alienated from the work he does and the things and pleasures he consumes, but also from the social forces which determine our society and the life of everybody living in it. At its worst, his body, his mind, and his soul are his capital, and his task in life is to invest it favorably, to make a profit of himself. Human qualities like friendliness, courtesy, kindness are transformed into commodities, into assets of the personality package, conducive to a higher price on the personality market. My mind goes to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If the individual fails in a profitable investment of himself, he feels that, quote unquote, he is a failure. If he succeeds, quote unquote, he is a success. Wow. As you said, 1955, it feels prescient. Um, what particularly strikes a chord for you there, Brad? I think you hit the nail on the head, just, and I reiterated it twice, 1955. Um, I feel like these are the biggest themes that we're wrestling with today. Um, yeah. It's not a Kodak camera. It's social media. Mm. It is cable news. It is, to a large extent, even the internet right. that shapes so much of how we experience the world. And there's a line in there but I tried to emphasize that it also alienates us from the society in which we live. Right. And I think that there is a real tension that people are experiencing and feeling. I think COVID has made this so much worse because whatever momentum was going in the direction of actual community and actual engagement for many people has become unsafe. So this notion of alienation from our work, from our communities and from ourselves yeah. um, is something that I think is, is every bit as ripe now as it was when Fromm must have written this in 1955. And then the second thing is the struggle to live, thrive in a society that is capitalist. And mm -hmm. I am not a pro-capitalist. I am not an anti-capitalist. There are pros and cons to all systems. Yeah. Capitalism is one, and it works really well for some things and not so well for others. Right. But this notion that everything has to work in service of something else. Mm. Um, modern scientists call this the arrival fallacy, that if I right. just get this promotion, if I just sell many <laughs> exactly. books, then I'll arrive. Yeah. In my book, I call this, the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. Right. And the goalpost was 10 yards down the field in 1955 too, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Right. Is there any danger that this is you and me kind of sitting on our front porch going, oi, get off my lawn to young people? Because, you know, like where, where we've navigated capitalism, we're in the middle or kind of middle end of our careers and we've had success. 
is this a kind of a luxury of I'm already done it, I've done my work, and now society's going to hell because I'm an old person and society's always going to hell if you're an old person? Well, I'm only 35, so I'm not that old. <laughs> so I I'm still, an old I got, I'm an old I have, person. I have skin it. in the game here. Um, All right. And I have a son, and, and I want him to grow up in a world that right. is that is more loving and that is really human and, and yeah. where these kind of experiences can happen. And, you know, I try, I try to put on my research, writing, reporting hat mm. to avoid that very problem. And we live in an area with a lot of kids age 11 to 14. Yeah. And without trying to be like the awkward dad, I ask them about this stuff. And they're feeling this pressure too. Mm. And they don't like it. Yeah. Um, so I also think that this is a timeless problem. Um, mm. Many of the ancient wisdom traditions were trying to answer the question of how to solve the arrival fallacy. Mm. The cultivation of presence, of being here now, that underlies so much of Buddhism, Taoism, Stoicism, yeah. the more spiritual aspects of Christianity and Judaism, is really, to me, about superseding the notion to always think ahead or have what's next. Right. Red, your first book was Peak Performance which feels like it's about, <laughs> there's a goalpost and I'm, I'm heading up that mountain. And it feels like you've come down from the mountain because your, your new book is about the practice of groundedness. What do you know now that you didn't know when you wrote your first book? Oh my goodness, a lot. <laughs> um, so I stand by the work in Peak Performance. It is a beautiful user manual for operating when everything is clicking. Mm. Everything in there is evidence-based. It is a very commercial title, but it is not a book of hacks or quick fixes. It is when you are performing well, how do you sustain that? Right. My second book, The Passion Paradox, is all about how do you cultivate drive and motivation and how do you keep it on the right track? Right. So that to me is the way up the mountain. Mm. This third book is the foundation of the mountain. Right. And you can get by on the first two books when everything's going well. But right. when rough weather comes, if you don't have a strong foundation, mm -hmm. then the whole thing's going to collapse. And I experienced a really bad bout of depression related to obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. And my mountain kind of collapsed. Right. And it took a lot of healing. It took help. It took therapy to learn and get interested in some of those foundational skills. And... I think that I had to write the books in this order because I hadn't had an experience like that. So mm -hmm. I couldn't know. Yeah. But now I would tell readers to read them the opposite way that I wrote them. <laughs> right. To start with the practice of groundedness and to build that durable foundation. As somebody who was having success and understood success at a, at a disciplined, intellectual, research-based, evidence-based way... What did you learn about navigating struggle and failure? Yeah. So I don't like the word failure mm. because I think it depends on what the goal is. Right. And I've done a lot of work really starting when I was young. I'm very fortunate to have had coaches and teachers and mentors that have helped instill this mindset in me to try to have the ultimate goal of being a kind, strong, wise person. Yeah. So if that's my North Star, 
that I'm never going to reach, but I can like shoot towards, then I'm never really failing because everything is grist for the mill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the second part of what you asked was more um, like challenge or struggle. Mm -hmm. And there um, I learned the importance of being able to ask for help. Right. And really practicing deep acceptance. So not resisting something that's happening, not passively resigning to it, but yeah. accepting it, seeing it clearly. So then you can work on it. Mm. Um, and also of relationships and community, um, which has become a, a big theme in the practice of groundedness is that, and I'm channeling from, which is why I, I am so glad I was able to read that book. But yeah, yeah. my sense is if from was here, he would agree with me, although he'd say it more elegantly, <laughs> that today what we called optimization or efficiency or hustle culture, mm -hmm. it crowds out and cannibalizes time for cultivating deep community. Right. And it's the deep community that really is your safety net when shit hits the fan. But yeah. it's also the deep community that when you're succeeding provides gravity for you. Yeah, yeah. And it's the deep community that becomes the fabric of a society. Mm -hmm. So I think really understanding the importance of those two principles or practices of, of acceptance, even if it's something that you don't want to be happen. Here I am, a best-selling author of a book called Peak Performance, happily married. I have no reason to be feeling what I'm feeling and thinking what I'm thinking. But the yep. more that I resist it, the worse it becomes. Right. And acceptance was a whole new skill to me. I was... Born and raised in a, you know, Western religious kind of secular household where you think positive and you power through things yeah. and, you know, you, you like you take control and all of that can be true, but there has to be an acceptance of what's happening first. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, the second lesson is really around the importance of deep community and how it's so easy to get caught up in the frenetic pace of modern life and of quote unquote success mm. and even before COVID, a coffee date becomes a phone call. A phone call mm -hmm. becomes a text message. Right. Text message becomes a quick email because it's faster, it's more convenient, it allows you to be more efficient. Yeah. But efficient for what? The phrase deep community is a powerful one because I think uh, loneliness is a, a force that is present across all ages in all sorts of different ways. How do you think about deep community and how do you nurture it? So deep community to me has two elements. And the word deep community um, was just the language that I use because it, it, it feels like it's both of those things. Like there's a, there's a depth and a breadth. Um, and you think of deep as depth and then the community part is breadth. So the first element of deep community is a sense of belonging. Right. And that can be to a group of people. It can be to a religion or spiritual tradition. It can be to a physical place. Mm. It can also be to a lineage or right. a craft. Um, I feel like I belong to my local community. I feel like I belong to my neighborhood. But I also feel like I have a sense of belonging in the lineage of humanistic thinkers like Eric Fromm. Right, right. So it need not be physical. The okay. second element of deep community is physical, and mm. it's the physical connection. Um, there's all sorts of research that goes to show that the act of being some with someone in the present 
is wholly different than not. These are very bizarre times with COVID. I think yeah. a lot of people are unfortunately viscerally realizing this. Right. What it means that this this through the video is not the same as sitting next to you on a on a seat. Right. And it yeah. can be pretty good. I mean, thankfully technology's gotten us this close. Mm-hmm. Um and yet it's not the same. So carving out time once COVID passes or even now when it's when it's safe to perhaps meet outdoors for that sense of in-person um, connection and belonging, that is such a big part of having a strong foundation. And again, it is the very stuff that gets crowded out right. in a life that is just focused on rising in um, conventional definitions of success or achievement. Because belonging generally takes reflection. Yes. You have to know what you belong to. <laughs> or it takes work. You have to be a part of the lineage or a part of yeah. the craft. Yeah. And then we already talked about all the reasons that connection gets um, you know, optimized out of people's life. So how do you yourself and how do you help others find this balance between the short-term demands of progress and success and the longer-term commitments to presence and belonging? Mm. Through is philosophical and, you know, rich language is everything I just said to describe the idea. Mm-hmm. The actual practice is very concrete. Right. Um, I'm a big believer that if you've got M&Ms in front of you and brown rice in front of you, you're always going to choose the M&Ms. For sure. So I don't even see the rice. I'm like, there is no rice here. There are only right. M&Ms. But yeah. the issue is when you eat M&Ms every day, all day, you start to feel sick. Mm-hmm. And the cultivating of presence, the prioritization of deep community, it's the brown rice in our life. Right. And realizing that you are always going to choose M&Ms, there is the boundary setting, there is the carving out time, the scheduling of these things that you do come hell or high water. Right. And that gets you so far. And then the second step is to pay really close attention to what you get. Because the mind-body learning system is very, very efficient and effective. Yeah. So um, a personal example that makes this super concrete. My first book, Peak Performance, I mentioned that um, I just had no idea what to expect. And, yeah. and I thought I was doing well. My co-author on that book thought he was doing well too. Um, but at the end of that week, we felt like we had just come off of a bender. <laughs> we felt just disgusting, like hungover, right. irritated, tired, empty, mm-hmm. like you need just some greasy eggs and bacon to <laughs> fill your, your gross stomach. Right. And presumably that's because we were running all over New York City and Boston doing mm-hmm. all these interviews, refreshing our Amazon sales rank in between, hoping that we'd hit the New York Times bestseller list and on and on. And that didn't feel good. And the second book came around and we remembered and we said, I don't want to feel gross like that. So for the second book, we said, nope, we're going to launch it in one of our hometowns. Mm-hmm. So either the San Francisco Bay Area, where I lived at the time, or Houston, where Steve lived. Yeah. And we're going to have a launch party with just our close friends and family that we invite. Yeah. And then that first week, we're going to set aside three hours of time every day to do the publicity, to do the checking, whatever yeah. it is, but no more than that. Yeah. And it's going to be on us and our team to make sure that we prioritize what we do. Mm. And then in those other five hours, we're heading out for hikes without our phone. Nice. It was a completely different experience. Yeah. And it took a lot of paying attention 
to what we got out of the first time and a lot of boundary setting. Because if I would have brought my phone on that hike, it wouldn't have been the same hike. So I think that the knowing and the intellect mm. is what can motivate. Mm -hmm. But for all of these things, I think the actual practice, the doing has to be really concrete. Um, otherwise, it just it breaks down very easily. So help me with this. I would like to be more connected in my community. I'd like to belong more, more woven into the fabric here. And I've done assorted things to try and do that. And it's, many of them have been just a bit underwhelming <laughs> where I've gone, mm, you know what? I, I, I get more of a short-term little hit of nice chemicals in my brain when I'm honestly answering email or thinking about ideas or, or reading a book or stuff that is not all short term, but often entangled in my kind of the stuff I love to do, which is work and stuff related to work. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, I'm like, uh, I don't mind. I mean, the brain rice is okay, but mm. <laughs> how do you, how do you get through the first few underwhelming mouthfuls of brown rice? I think that you have to realize that they might be a little <laughs> underwhelming at right. first. Yeah. And it's not an automatic thing. I mean, I don't know where you live and I don't know how much of that was representative versus actual and, and you don't have to share, but let's pretend for someone listening, it is actual, mm -hmm. then maybe that's okay. I'm just yeah. saying like, you should at least try it. Um, yeah. If you live in a super small town and you are a PhD in cognitive science and no one speaks your language, yeah, then you're right. You might not find that much there. Um but if like most people, you don't live in a small town and there are neighborhoods and there are bookshops and there are cafes, again, this isn't, this isn't, doesn't have to be heroic. So a simple act for the, the Michael or <laughs> Michael like person, yeah. just make it a point and let's assume this is COVID safe at a, hopefully mm -hmm. at a time in the near future, if not now, depending on where you yeah. live, Yeah, work in a cafe. Don't go to different cafes, work in the same cafe. Right. Ask the barista how they're doing. Yeah. You go for three weeks, they're going to know your name, you're going to know their name. That's yeah. community. Like, that's a right. sense of physical connection of rootedness. Brad, it's been a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Um, and congratulations on the new book as well. As a, as a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? I think that all of this stuff is a practice. Mm. Um, there's a reason that the title of my book is The Practice of Groundedness instead right. of just Grounded. And that was mm -hmm. a fight, and it will probably sell less copies because of it. Right. But you don't just become grounded. It's not just a switch that you flick. It is an ongoing practice. Mm. And you have highs and lows, and you remember and you forget. There's a reason that I read Eric Fromm today. And the art of loving could have been called the practice of loving. He chose the right. art. I should probably title my book, The Art of Groundedness. <laughs> no, don't. <But> too late. <laughs> you actually read his book. Yeah. And what he's saying is that love is a practice. Right, right. Um, love is something that you do. Mm. And I think that the more that we can realize that, the kinder to ourselves we can be. Mm. Because we realize in those moments when we're not grounded or we're not loving, that everyone has those moments and it's just practice. And the more right-sized our expectations will be for this sort of stuff. That like it is a path, it is a journey. Um, 
you have a coaching practice. You care deeply about it. You bring attention to it. You learn as you go. There are times mm. when you probably resent your clients and want to quit. And there are times when you feel like you're the luckiest human on the planet. Sure. And that is everything that we do. Yeah. And it's not the message that we get in our like consumeristic society. You should feel good. You should be happy. You know, you should look good on Instagram. Um, but I think it's a much more accurate way to conceive of life. And I think you get um, more fulfillment and well-being as a result. The breakthrough for me in this conversation was how I think about groundedness and in particular depth. I mean, before the conversation, if you'd asked me, I might have said that groundedness and maybe humility, I think they're, they're related are about keeping my feet on the ground, staying humble, being true to who I am. And, you know, all of those are very self-centered, individualistic. But now I'm thinking about groundedness and its connection to being more entwined with those around me, my family and my friends and my community. I mean, honestly, the image I've got in my head is from that Guardians of the Galaxy movie where Groot, that's the, the wordless tree alien, envelops the other guardians to protect them all from impending disaster. How do I do more of that is what I'm asking myself. And I'm curious to know, of course, what your practice is for staying grounded. If you enjoyed this conversation with Brad, I've got a couple of other um, suggestions for you. You might like to listen to my chat with John Zeratsky. Uh, the episode is called How to Focus on What Matters. I thought that was a really interesting dive on the discipline of staying focused, uh, but doing it with a lightness and a joy. The other one you might want to consider is a conversation with Mason Curry entitled Fragile and Fleeting. All about the transience of life and how you got to be here now to make the most of it. If you want to learn more about Brad, uh, you can, of course, buy his new book, Practice of Groundedness, anywhere you'll find books. Um, the easiest place to go and find more about Brad in person is his website, Brad Stuhlberg, B-R-A-D-S-T-U-L-B-E-R-G.com. And his most active social is Twitter, so at B Stuhlberg, B-S-T-U-L-B-E-R-G. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please pass the word along. If you like this episode, just ping somebody in your life who you think would like it as well would mean a great deal to me and to Brad. Um, if you're so moved to give it a thumbs up on a podcast app, that's wonderful as well. Love to see those numbers grow slowly but surely. And if you'd like to go a little deeper, find unreleased episodes, dive into the transcript so you can kind of get specific about what was said and review that. Um, and some other downloads that I've prepared, you might want to join Duke Humphreys. It is the private and free membership site. You'll find that at the podcast page on mbs.works. Thank you for listening. You're awesome and you're doing great.